Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1267, which is entitled Drawing Inspiration from Inspiring Drawings. Our podcast title today is The Podcast at the End of the Lane. And I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And today we'll be talking with artist Elise Hurst, who has illustrated rather well, I think, the ocean at the end of the lane at Neil Gaiman's latest fantasy novel I'll go with. Uh, before then, I wanted to play our daily or a weekly Bowie track, which is um, a daily Bowie today, uh, and the track from uh, Changes, which which is to say there's a good reason for playing this. Aware, well aware, like everybody else, of uh, our famous President 45's tirade against Greta. And uh, for getting on the uh, the time cover when he thinks that he should be on there, and there's just this um, a couple of lines in uh, changes um, that uh, I think are apt, and so the days float through my eyes, but still the days seem the same. And these children that you spit on as they try to change. So let's have Mr. Bowie in now. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet. Zero, G comes last. Z waits alone and it's not for a thing. Mr. Bowie there, ringing in the changes. Now, we've got a book in front of us. Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is just one of those titles that rolls off the tongue. And it's a headline hardback. And it's uh, illustrated... Illustrated by Elise Hurst. Um, and uh, it's about the interface between the primal force that is the Hempstock family, those who are charged with minding the ocean at the end of the lane, and a more mundane family who live at the top of the lane. That's in the uh, the place before you step off the pavement into Gaiman Land. Now, that interface is a, a preteen young lad, a self-reliant and imaginative book reader whom I'd say we and more than a few of our listeners can readily identify with. With us today is not Neil Gaiman, but his book's worthy illustrator, Melbourne artist Elise Hurst, whose glorious drawings are the littoral zone between the ocean and Neil's evocative, rich text. Now, Elise is a Melbourne-based illustrator, a fine artist and author, and she's done a lot of children's books, amongst other things. Uh, got about 50 books in there. Uh, g'day, Elise. It's lovely to be here. Now... You've been published all over the world, and I've got to say that these are as fine book illustrations as any I've seen, and I think they do as excellent a job accompanying the writing as a great soundtrack does a superb film. So I want to know, what lane did you go down to to illustrate uh, a Neil Gaiman book? 
Well, it's interesting that you should say that it's like a soundtrack because that's kind of how I thought about it. Ah. Yeah, because there's a lot of times when you see illustrations in books and they're very much like decoration. And decoration doesn't really do storytelling itself. It's something that is there just to show some of the details and be pretty a lot Uh of the time. And as a picture book person, I find that I'm used to using my voice in terms of illustrations to tell half the story at least. And often you might be doing the lion's share of storytelling. You might be the unreliable narrator. You might be doing all sorts of different functions. So for this book, what I desperately wanted to do was to be a storyteller myself and to help make us more immersed in the story rather than remind us the whole time with the wrong illustrations that you're reading a story and it's not real and it's not true. So you would have been reading the text very, very closely, like a a composer watches a film, to Mm. pick out key moments to illustrate. Yeah, absolutely. And like you you do get with a composer, you're actually looking at different motifs for different characters and you start to weave those into the story in the same way that I noticed Neil was doing where he would describe colours and he would describe the appearance of certain things and... I knew this book so intimately because I had to know every single physical detail that's mentioned in the story. So the first thing I did was create a Bible <laughs> of, of the visual details in the story and that in itself was a massive tome because I had to know exactly what was going to be seen because I care about these details. Yeah. yeah. Um, I came to this book as a fan of the book because it's already been out before. It came out in 2013 uh-huh. first, I believe. So I read it years before this project actually was begun. So I was really, really caring about getting everything right because I knew his fans were going to care <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, I remember, what was it? We were talking about um, the, uh, the movie adaptation of Stephen King's Doctor Sleep and I was really cheesed that uh, they didn't adopt the correct jaunty angle for Rosa Hatt's uh, signature hat you know so you, you sort of get these details from the books it's like if you've ever you know read lord of the rings and there's certain things in that that you must have yeah absolutely <laughs> and they they become these signature things uh-huh. um they've just done a theater adaptation of the ocean at the end of the lane in uh-huh. london uh-huh. and i saw some of the artwork for this and some of the photographs and they're holding the y-shaped stick that letty hemstock walks with uh-huh. when she's sort of not dowsing they're holding it the opposite way way around from how i drew it and i'm just thinking okay now who is right is it me or is it them or do i just keep quiet about this so i've just completely ruined it no you, you were drawing in the southern hemisphere they're in the northern hemisphere it's the other way around oh that's true that's true we were Wittishans or something yeah so can you take us through the practice for these drawings uh, you know so okay you've got your bible and uh, you picked out a scene that you need to illustrate yeah what happens then well, it helps to go to England. Mm. Um, so I'm in my head, I live in England, basically. I grew up reading all the same books as the kid in the story, uh-huh. uh, the unnamed protagonist. Uh, I was reading all of those 1940s and 50s adventure stories for girls and boys and watching BBC. And so in my head, there are rolling fields and forests and there's Celtic mythology. Uh-huh. And so when I read the story, it's like, I I know this place. Mm -hmm. I know it so well. And so, you know, once I'd worked up my Bible of what everything needed to look like and the details that needed to be there, and I started doing my little sketches, I suddenly realized there was a lot of stuff I don't know at all. Like, I don't know how big fields are in England. I know what 
size and shape they tend to be here and I know that in between the fields there are hedgerows and I can look at films and things but it's not it's not the same as walking around mm. so I did a lot of design work and I did a lot of um, of kind of pre-imagining and looking at photographs and films and then I realized I actually just need to go to England so <laughs> so I flew to England and I spent a week walking around through soggy forests and and going to the lane because this is actually his most autobiographical book. Uh-huh. It is set in the lane where he grew up. So you actually went walked down that lane. I did. I and what of, is at the end of it? I I emailed Neil and I said, so what's the address? Because <laughs> I need to go. Yeah. Um, and I'd got his childhood um, photographs of where he used to live and the house because a lot of it doesn't exist anymore. As it doesn't in the book. As it doesn't in the book. That's right. So it's like, well, you got to help me out here. Mm. And at the end of the lane, there's a farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew which farm he was drawing on for inspiration. And so I, I wrote to the lady who owned the farm and she showed me around and I went all through the Hempstock's house, which Neil had never done. And for him, it was, was something he yeah, created in yeah. his head. But um, it was he would have known these houses very, very well and the way they tend to be constructed, whereas, again, I don't because... In Australia, 80 years old is very, very old here. Mm. So um, so I, I actually went to the right place and, and tramped around and took stupid photos of myself doing weird poses in forests, trying to imagining that I'm jumping away from baddies and monsters and <laughs> walked around in the middle of the night with storms and things crashing to see what the flinty lanes look like. <laughs> it was wonderful. It, it shows, um, you know, the perspective of some of these drawings. I feel like I'm there, like I'm in a sunken lane or about to trip over a gnarled tree root or that kind of thing. So there is a presence in there that, that we're quite, that's quite evocative. Oh, that's really good. One of the giant challenges of doing a book like this and thinking, okay, I want it to be immersive mm. is that I know that people's imaginations are the most powerful storytelling tools that we have right. as writers and as illustrators. And what you're trying to do is engage that rather than swamp that. Uh-huh. So there are a lot of times when there were things that I really wanted to illustrate, but I, I pulled back from it because I, what I wanted to do was lead people into this story, build the atmosphere and then leave places for them to do some other work. Because mm. that's what Neil was doing in his writing, and that's what I always do in my picture books. I like to leave a lot of gaps. I felt like um, when I was reading it and following through the illustrations as well, that um, uh, it was like Neil just sat back for a moment and perhaps had a glass of water while you're picking up with the illustration and, and carrying <laughs> on. And, of course, I mean, there's a there's a... There's a a technical reason for that too because um, a lot of your drawings are using uh, swirling lines so there is a, a, a feeling that you are just picking up and carrying us on. Um, I wonder, one of the things I, I particularly liked, um, for this book I'd, I'd almost say you're using a hairline style, I've just invented that term, which, <laughs> is, which is to say that the swirling, spiralling masses of black washes which end in picked out individual hair-like strokes. They kind of focus the reader's attention where you want with that focus often glowingly illuminated to create a particularly strong contrast of light and shade. And I really envy you your ability to just subtly suggest what's going on there with just a few little pieces of, of artwork. Every now and then I feel like I can, I'm a complete false um, untalented person because I see some people's work and they do all the detail and it's beautiful and it's fully realised and I think oh but I 
I like things to be loose and I like them to be suggestive and sometimes I feel like I'm just I'm not doing enough work but but what I I, what I really do want to do though is to have movement Mm. and I was thinking a lot about Hitchcock and about shadows and about how do we um how do we kind of get people to certain emotional states and I think it's not by showing them all the detail it's by Sometimes it's by turning out the light and making a spooky noise and then you just let them, you know, populate the, the room with, with shadows and ghosts. Give them their own negative space. Absolutely. And this book is really about, for me, it's about thinking, well, you know all those stories you read as a child and all of those bad dreams you had and all the fears you had when the light was off. Oh. What if that stuff was real? You know, how would you react? How would you cope with that? What would the world be like if you really were in one of these books, which is a a terrifying notion. The monster under the bed says, it's okay, I'm scared too. (laughs) Yeah, but they don't. (laughs) They don't? No, I don't think they do. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so it was really important to leave the light switched off, really. Yeah. 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 Um, I'd like to have a track here, which is... uh, I think it's um, it's one of Neil's um, funnier tracks from an evening with Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer, the day the saucers came. That means flying saucers and why nobody really took much notice of it. Too busy taking selfies, I guess. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 Triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 with three exclamation marks. All good. Yeah. Mm, Mr. Gaiman there with uh, The Day the Sources Came, an evening with Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer. <laughs> exactly right, isn't it? That, that's the way it would be. We just wouldn't notice at all when things <laughs> go pear-shaped. Now, I am talking with Elise Hurst, who is the illustrator of Neil Gaiman's most excellent The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is out now as a, as a beautiful, really beautiful hardback from Headline Press. I just like to pick this up. The, it's got that, um, that sort of parchment feeling to the, to the cover, which is, is all to the good. Uh, I guess you're quite happy that you got to illustrate the cover as well. It yeah. doesn't always happen. No, that was the designer's doing, which is wonderful. It is an internal illustration, but mm-hmm. he's actually reversed it so that all the da- dark mm. lines have become light. And it's this wonderfully spooky effect. It's beautiful with a little bit of colour. So um, what's the actual, I mean, taking us through uh, the, uh, the sort of um, methodology of, of the process of doing the illustrations for this, what is the actual technique? Are you doing pen and ink? Or? Yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, it's fine line. It starts with a little bit of pencil just to get things in place mm-hmm. and then it's, it's pen and ink. And it would have been a lot of watercolour, but I kind of committed to a really dodgy paper. It's a beautiful paper, but... After I'd done a fair bit of drawing, I realised it doesn't like to be wet. Mm. So I actually had to change my technique and change what I was going to be using. So now there's a lot of dry brushed acrylic and things. And that's actually one of the things I I have to say that I love about using old school techniques. And one of the reasons why I really resist going digital is that mm. I like mistakes and I like problems. 
Yeah, whereas with digital, you're always tempted to fix it up. You would. Yeah, Yeah, I'm quite frightened about that because I find some of the biggest leaps forward that I've done in my artistic practice are when I've really got something up Mm. and I've had to work out on my feet how I'm going to fix that. And that's when you suddenly become really inventive Mm. and you actually have to change your approach. And sometimes you just realise you've just stumbled onto something really, really good and it would never have happened if you hadn't chosen a bad paper or a pen has suddenly splattered everywhere. You've dropped a brush or, yeah, any I, of those annoying mm, things. I did that once. I um, created a Starfield um, accidentally, a Starfield technique for um, for, for drawing. Uh, I was using some uh, uh, frisketing um, uh, latex, which you use to block out sections, and, yeah. and I had a toothbrush that I'd spilled it on and I spattered it on the page, washed <laughs> black over it afterwards and then rubbed off the, the latex and gave me a little Starfield. Yeah, yeah. I, I notice you don't use too much um, uh, what they call stippling in the in the illustrations, um, which for people who don't know about it is is actually just using the point of the pen to put dots in, rather like pixels in a in a photograph. Yeah, I think my style is labour intensive enough without that. Yeah, some of my first <laughs> books that I did. So I started off illustrating when I was still at uni studying archaeology. Yeah, and I was just doodling all over everything. And my first two books were actually role-playing manuals uh-huh. and they were one was to do with Arthurian myth which was great because I'd just been doing Arthurian studies and the other one was to do with uh, a Viking game which was great because I'd just been studying Old Norse and I did all of those with a stipple technique and it just took forever it, does, it looked it? really really good <laughs> and also I was often working on the train kind of going between my house and my parents house so there'd be it'd be stipple stipple strip Stipple, stipple, stick every time the train changed or jogged on the tracks. God, that takes me back. I know. <laughs> I've done the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone has. And people will be thinking, oh, it's an interesting technique you have. It's like, yeah, the, change, the train changed tracks at this yeah. point. <laughs> but, you, yeah, this one, this style takes long enough. So what are you using? What, what instrument? Uh, I'm just using a, a Unipin Fineliner. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty much it. This one a sad story is that I was using so many of these that I thought, well, I need to find them a little bit cheaper because I'm I'm kind of keeping their company afloat right now. Mm. And I found somewhere overseas that was selling boxes of them, and I bought them, and they were counterfeit. <gasps> Someone had gone to all the trouble of making yeah. absolutely identical pens with yeah. the same boxes, same everything. But I noticed after a while that they weren't quite waterproof, and you. You're using the pen and the writing is rubbing off the side of the pen. And I suddenly looked at my artwork and thought, oh, my God, this might not be light fast. So I've had to work my way through the illustration to see what I shouldn't sell in case it fades to light orange one day. And that was a bit heartbreaking. Yeah, and uh, because people go, oh, well, look, this is This is obviously real artwork. It's... Yeah, 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 it's transient. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very now actually. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like it only lasts for a few years. So, um, uh, never use rotaries or anything like that. Those reservoir ones. And no, I used to, um, but I just found the knit, the um, metal tips were just a little bit damaging for the paper. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I like I like Unipin because I feel like the nib lasts for as much ink as I have. I hate knowing that there's a lot of ink still in the pen, but the nib is gone, so I can't get to it anymore. 
I think I'm just very cheap. The rose rings are really fiddly. Yeah. So, and you have to clean them, and it's just a nuisance. I mean, yeah. there's a, it's like making coffee in a way. You've got to clean them out and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, I yeah. think everyone's got their own yeah, favourite yeah. thing, and it's like an extension of your hand, and you know how it works. I used to like using um, dip pens, um, crow quill uh, points and stuff yeah. like that, you know, the steel They're pens. They're so beautiful. Yeah, they are. They're terrifying because all of a sudden you get a blob or a splatter. And, <laughs> and knock, knock your ink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, there's an interesting wash. Like, yeah, we're going to call that a happy accident. <laughs> Even though I'm swearing my head off. So, are you using? Um, are you putting the washes in first or afterwards? Ah, uh, it kind of it varies. Yeah. I think I do the bit that I find interesting first, mm-hmm. and then I just kind of work my way all over the place. And there were some times when it was very annoying because, even though I felt like I had a huge amount of time for this book, I ended up doing 101 illustrations. They thought they were going to get 40. Mm-hmm. And as I went through and I was designing it, and I'd, I'd ask the the, uh, the designer to actually lay in the text into my rough so we could see how the text was flowing uh. and we could make sure that the things that were being described were in the right place of the illustration and not the page before or the yep. page after. And every time he laid it in, I'd look at the text and think, right, well, that needs to be changed and that's not right. So I'd go in and alter the design and add in a couple more pictures to shift a sentence somewhere three pages on in the right spot. And it just grew and grew and grew. And as I was working on that, I started um, working out my, you know, my favourite scenes, the ones that had to have giant double-page spreads. Uh-huh. And I was working over such a long period of time that even if I went through and said, right, I think this, this picture will take half a, pa- half a day, this pa- picture should take one or two or three days, that still added up to yeah. mm. an enormous amount of time and the publishers are always anxious for things as soon as they can get them. And so I had to kind of find a really quick way of working. And so some of these in the end, you just have to keep going at it till you got it right and they might end up taking two weeks. And then you'd find that you'd do all this huge amount of hand drawing and I got really fast. I could get to about eight strokes per second which I thought was pretty good, but it was still sometimes taking a week to do a picture. <laughs> and then you realise you messed it up and you'd have to kind of start again. Uh. But, yeah, so it's, it was this big combination of styles. And I think in the end I ended up doing a lot more dry brush and wash work over the top just because it filled in space a bit faster. And, it, yeah, it was achieving the same result but in a slightly quicker way. The book actual size is about half A4. Mm. Uh, so how big are your um, illustrations in the original? Just a little bit bigger. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay. The heartbreaking thing about illustration, especially when you're doing fine detail work, is that you have to give them bleed yeah. so that when they're printing it, if they accidentally do it off-centre, mm. you need to not get a white border around the side, which means that you often have to supply an extra centimetre or two of illustration. That's and never if, seen. That's never seen. And if you're doing really detailed work, you can't just have it as this blurry <laughs> bit around the edge. You actually fill it up. So yeah. sometimes there are you get some really great bits that no one is ever going to see. Unless they happen to buy the original um, artwork at your website. Exactly right. <laughs> then you get to, it's like the B side. You get to see all the hidden bits that mm. no one else otherwise pays attention to. Talking to Elise Hurst, who've, who is the illustrator of Neil Gaiman's book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, or at least the latest edition of it, mm. which is uh, from Headline Press in Hardback. Now, I'd like to play another track here. And uh, which one is this one, Megan? Poem, poem for Neil. Is mm-hmm. that the one that we yes, were after? This is Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer again. Mm-hmm. From an evening with Neil Gaiman. 
This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Here we are, Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Back in the studio with Elise Hurst, who is the illustrator of Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And a bit of a word there from Neil Gaiman himself, from an evening with Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer. So we're talking about this illustrated book, which almost qualifies as a graphic novel in many respects. Um, we've, um, I found that your style is quite versatile, too, in service of the narrative. There's a lot of threatening and sinister content in the story, which means it's entirely suited for kids, <laughs> well, at least my kind of kid. Um, so your style suits that well, but you also use the same methodology to create a, a fairly comfortingly warm and cosy home environment for the Hempstock farm interior. So you go from these these writhing scenes of threat to these quite warm fireside um, things. How, how important was you to get uh, was it to you to get the balance right in that? I think I was thinking of it a little bit like um, you know in Lord of the Rings when you watch the films and they stay for a really long time in Hobbiton mm-hmm. and it's green and it's beautiful and you kind of feel like they're never going to leave. And that is basically the one thing that balances out all the crap that comes afterward that gets thrown at the characters over and over and over again. So with a book like this, um, I think it's written for your inner child but not for an outer child. It's definitely an adult book that teens will enjoy. Um, I think for a book like this, you have to have a few perfect moments that just allow you to have a little bit of respite. Yeah. And... The character's a really interesting one. He is a seven-year-old boy that we never learn the name of. Mm. Um, And he's sort of an everyman in it in some way. And when I was trying to work out um, what the character should look like, and I was really in two minds as to whether I should have portraits or I shouldn't because I know people have an image in their mind of what people will look like or what the characters will look like in stories. And it can be really difficult when the character that has been drawn is completely different to what you've had in your mind. And I certainly understand that as a reader. Um, But when I was working on the characters, I found that it was fine and actually really useful to have a very firm idea of what the boy looked like because he was like our guide going through the narrative. He was sort of our, our mythological tour guide who was going to be our anchor. And so... And because he wasn't named, I needed ways to actually make him more real as well. And uh, I have eight-year-old twin boys. So at the time when I was drawing this, they were seven, which was the same age as the protagonist. So I was able to get their help a lot, which was fantastic. So Uh you can definitely see my kids in there. And I think getting the emotional engagement of uh, a real child with real emotions done in a fairly realistic way was really helpful at Mm. times in the story. But there are other characters I didn't really want to show. I kind of wanted to give a suggestion of them. So the main female lead, who is Letty Hempstock, she is, I don't know if I should do any spoilers, but (laughs) I think it's been out since 2013. We can probably do a couple. Yeah, when we say the Hempstock family, we're kind of um, fudging things a little. We are a little. They are, (laughs) I don't know, they have the same mythological uh, gravity as the three witches, the mm. three wise characters that you get in so many different stories. Actually, a remind because I've just recently read um, Neil Gaiman's um, take on Norse myths. There's mm. characters in there that like the different aspects of the same character. Yeah, yeah, and I think that 
that's a recurring thing for him. Mm. And one of the reasons why I love the Sandman books when I was at uni and I first stumbled across them is there is so much mythology in there. There's so much to recognise, but with these fantastically compelling characters mm. who sort of embody different aspects of the gods. And for Letty Hemstock, she is... She, how she wants to be perceived. Oh. She kind of has created her own outward appearance, as has any, everyone in her family. And her true nature is something we sort of glimpse in places throughout the story. And it's the same for the, the main baddie in the story as well, Ursula Monkton. She is a monster, and kind of the, the nature of, of what it is to be a monster is something that's discussed in an interesting way in the story. But she's a Neil Gaiman monster, which means she's got more going for the, her than, than mundane sort of monsters. Yeah. And I feel like um, she's a good deal of her monstrosity um, derives from her being out of the right place. You yeah. know, like an introduced species? Yeah, mm. absolutely. What... What we see as a monster is just normal to somebody else. Yeah. It's just, yeah, what we don't expect to see. It operates in a way that doesn't seem to fit with our universe. It doesn't follow the rules. Actually, at the same time, she's still quite terrifying. And oh, yeah. one of Neil's um, uh, signature moves is to make her very terrifying and then find something that terrifies her. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even monsters are scared of something. That's right, yeah. An yeah. excellent book, um, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Neil Gaiman is the writer. It's illustrated by Elise Hurst. It's in Headline Press as a hardback book. And, you know, I, I just cannot think of um, too many other books which are illustrated that have such a perfect fit of artwork for text. So congratulations on that. Thank you. That makes me very happy. Hmm. So I, I did actually. We actually started chattering away on, the, on during the track, uh, talking about your favourite pen and ink artists and uh, inspirations. But none of that translated through to the air. So, um, who are your faves? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a little bit old school. So I, I've always been interested in you know the apocalyptic sort of illustrators from uh -huh. oh, Gustave Doré and Albrecht Dürer and lithography and etching and a lot of the really old school stuff where all they had was black line because those were the constraints of publishing and reproduction at the time and what they could do with line just still makes my jaw drop mm. they could do you know exploding suns and celestial beings and they could do the darkest levels and pits of hell and so i'd look at that and think well there's no excuse for me i should be able to pull this off just fine but there, there's something um simple but primal kind of like the characters in the book um in the in the classic technique of like um suggesting a three-dimensional form by running your lines in a two-dimensional way on the paper around the imaginary curves of the item mm. like on a tree trunk yeah. You know, and you're just thinking, this is 2D, but now it's 3D. Yeah. yeah, it's a lovely thing to do. Something I've been doing for years, and which is actually the work that I showed Neil when I, I first I first introduced him to my work, because mm. I thought, he's not really going to stumble across me any other way. Um, about over a decade ago, I showed him some of my little sketchbooks. And I've been working little moleskin sketchbooks for years. And what I like to do is they're like moments of narrative, moments of crazy narrative, when you're normally writing a story, you have to pull your ideas in so that they will make some sort of sense within the framework of a book. Um, so this is sort of my emotional release where I can start with a tiny bit of an idea and just see where it goes. Uh -huh. And while I've worked on that, I've developed this, this style of 
of line where I allow it to take as long as it needs to take and I you start to play with form and dimension and this line becomes a flowing living thing which is beautiful. We should be I wish we'd done a video of Elisa's hands then because she's <laughs> she may not know it, but she's actually um with with her fingers doing the same sort of curved lines and molding it like I keep coming back to trees and stuff in this um, in this context in the in the uh, in the book. Uh, she's like going along the the edge of the tree and, and giving the trunk and stuff. Awesome. <laughs> do you know what's really funny though? The first time I did tried to do some stone sculpture, yeah. I was working on a face and I basically did it like a deep two D face, and it took me ages to make my brain come to the fact that. I could just move around this thing. I was so <laughs> wedded to a 2D way of yeah. doing the world that it was really weird. It was like I was doing a, a Sumerian freeze or something instead. Mm. And, yeah, just don't get me on a tablet trying to do anything. That's just <laughs> – no. it's awful. I, I promise you, um, uh, although I, I, I think we spend too much time with screens as well, uh, and, you, you know, you yearn for going back to brushes or, um, or, um, or crafting tools or anything like that. Uh, but – the skills are transferable totally like just as you were saying you can go from uh, from drawing to sculpture the the skills are transferable yeah i think so and people coming at it from a different skill set i think can innovate in a way that maybe someone who's who's really really entrenched in one particular method Hmm. maybe can't although it's funny i we just did a launch in london about two weeks ago and that was great fun sitting on a on a stage with Neil Gaiman on a couch and a smoke machine and a <laughs> theatre full of people. Um, and normally he has someone like Chris Riddell doing his books and Chris Riddell is a force of nature who can draw 50,000 drawings in a minute. He's just insane. And I thought, I, I can't sit there and do that for this audience because these drawings take days. Mm. And so I, I did get a tablet and I drew and I... I I had the the drawing recorded so I could do it as a time-lapse animation up on the screen while Neil was doing his 20-minute reading. Um, Only I didn't learn how to do it first. So I'm drawing it and then I'm making mistakes (laughs) and I'm thinking, I can't find the rubber. While I'm looking for the rubber, are they just going to see me looking for the rubber on this tablet? (laughs) And so I was leaving mistakes and having to draw over the top of them in exactly the same way as I normally would. And then it wasn't until the end of about six hours of drawing that I thought, I could think of this like lithography. I could actually go in and get now a light colour and I could come back over the top. Mm. And that's about as far as I could engage with it. <laughs> to think of it like if I was working on a stone slab, how could I possibly yeah. you know, introduce a new technique here? But it was like you were you saying at the top of the interview, it's okay to make mistakes because mistakes are just art done right. Yeah. <laughs> I like but you that. don't know about that it's been done right yet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's proto good. Mm. It'll mm. get there in the end. You just have to be a, bit, a little bit patient and a little bit flexible. Unlike federal governments that uh, don't have um, artistic uh, ministries, mm. basically. But anyway, on that note, <laughs> thank you very much for coming in today, Elise. That's been lovely. Thank you very much. And you can check out Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is copiously, magnificently illustrated by... Elise Hurst in Headline Hardback. All right, we'll have another track here, which will be, and I've forgotten which one I picked out. Um, the was it a Tori, was it a Tori Amos one? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes, who of course has uh, strong links with Neil Gaiman, uh, and I think she actually uh, he actually um, stayed at her house while um, he was writing part of this book too. Uh, Precious things from the uh, Tori Amos collection, Tales of a Librarian. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Yeah. Tori Amos, Precious Things, Tales of a Librarian. <laughs> Remember that um, moment in uh, the Brendan Fraser uh, Mummy movie when. Yeah. Um, What's her name? Uh, Rachel Weiss. Rachel Weiss drunkenly stands up and says, I may not be da-da-da-da-da, but I am a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think The Mummy is a pretty good, act- solid action film. Yeah, I, I do too. The first one. The first one. The other sequels, maybe not so great. Yeah. Certainly by the time you get to The Scorpion King, it's... <sighs> yeah, we're in the dirt. We're in the sand by that it's point. It's jumped the pyramid. Although I did like the... Um, uh, the third one a bit with the uh, that had the the strong Asian influence in it. Oh so, yeah, anyway. I don't really remember any of the sequels to be honest. Anyway, we digress. We're running out of time now, so we're not going to do Knives Out like we we're going to say. But I will recommend that you go and see it. Absolutely, I heartedly concur. In- instantly gone to the uh, the top films of the year for Zero G. Mm. Um, great cast. Yes. Uh, for me, it kind of makes up for Ryan Johnson's Star Wars The Last Jedi. <laughs> for me, it continues his success like uh, The Last Jedi. <laughs> but certainly, you know, this man now has Looper to his credit and Brick. And... I mean, Brick, the fact that he did a teen noir detective story mm. went very, very, very well. I had thought that he might be able to do this murder mystery trope thing um, pretty good because I think if he ever does something genre, like a specific type of genre he knows it and does it well mm. so i was already going in with high hopes and they mm. were met mm. and I, I knew he was going to do quite well because i strongly remember his episodes of breaking bad yeah exactly yeah. and i think that um the premise of it i was i you know it's sort of right up my alley mm-hmm. but it is risky as well like especially i wasn't sure what kind of tone they would be going for mm. um and i actually think that it was it was different to what i had expected it would be yeah um which we won't go into because i don't want to spoil anything but no. i think they handled it quite well i think we should probably have a better chat about that next week because mm. it is in fact next week i think we might be having a general sort of uh overview of um films that we've seen yeah this year. Other things as well. Sorry? Other things as well. Yeah, top things. Of, I'm going to have to go back and really... Mandalorian. Still have a good think. Mandalorian still kicking goals. Yeah, well, I've actually, I'm a little behind, so I have to catch up on that. God, I love that moment in one of the earlier episodes where um, uh, the rest of the Mandos came in and their jetpacks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they knew that was going to be... Yeah. They knew what they were doing with that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that'd be quite fun. We'll do a bit of a... Retrospective, and, and as I've said, because I like I like um, the Mandalorian so much, and we've talked about it so yeah. much, I feel um, quite free to just ignore the next Star Wars movie. Well, I mean, I <laughs> saw another trailer for it. Yeah, um, it's, it's an Abrams one, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is, and he definitely. I mean, I can see the notes that he's hitting pretty hard for it, mm. and I think he's very much going. I think it's still going to be 
I think it'll be fun. Mm. It reminded me, even though I love Mandalorian, it did remind me that when Star Wars is done right in the fun way, it can be quite enjoyable. Even when it's done in the in the uh, the less fun way, like Rogue One, it can well, be terrific. Exactly, but that's the thing. I like both having those light um, mm. kind of the light ways they do it. I can't think of the, the light, light side and the dark <laughs> exactly. side for, for the Force's <laughs> sake. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the 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 Kyrascuro. <laughs> the light in the shade. Um, well, let's let's have a track called "The Ocean at the End of the Lane" to go out with today. Mm. Uh, when we do go out, uh, and it's by um, a British. Is there such a thing anymore after the election? <laughs> the, oh, don't! I'm feeling <laughs> the fragile youth, about the state of the world at the moment. The Youth and Young is the group, and it's from their album um, "Our Fathers' Wars." And the ocean at the end of the lane. I'm sure I haven't been able to find out much about this because I didn't have time to look at it. But I'm sure it's got something to do with um, Neil's book because of yeah. the uh, the way it, it talks about it. It must be. So yeah, and I, and I apologise. I keep saying that the Mandalorian is on Netflix. It's not. It's <gasps> when Disney did you Plus. say that last week? Terrible Disney yeah. Plus. I, I was almost getting going to ask our uh, our long suffering podcaster Kayla Larson <laughs> to bleep to, over to, the to top, edit it out, and then and I forgot. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's where we ended up with. So I'll, I'll just put aside all of our wonderful music for uh, knives out for next week. Yes, excellent. But we'll go out with precious things and. Um, I'm not quite sure uh, who's... Oh, yes, sorry. We have Holly Alexander coming up next mm-hmm. doing Astral Glamour. Mm, standing in for Joe Brunetic, who I, I hope is having a, a well-deserved break. Yes, exactly. Mm, and okay. uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, that's it for Zero G. Thank you, Rob. Mm, thank you, Megan. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.